Good morning. On behalf of the, uh, the community of uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I want to first uh, express my deep thanks to this uh, faith community for the ways that you care for our students and their family members as they go through theological education at Trinity, and also for the way that this congregation has been intentionally partnering with our school in serving the surrounding communities. It is indeed a deep privilege for me to join this time of worship with you. It was about 15 years ago when I was a a busy pastor. Uh, It was, in fact, I was doing a church plant ministry and also a very busy uh, doctoral student at Northwestern. Uh, You could just imagine how my day-to-day week schedule might have been like. A lot of the evenings and weekends I was away from the family. But that one evening, I happened to be home, in fact, enjoying a dinner with my family when my son, at that time, five years old, uh, looked at me directly and said something like this, Dad, I think you should get yourself a new job. <laughs> so I asked him, well, what kind of new job should I get, Nathaniel? He must have been thinking about this for a while because he had a ready answer right away. He said, I think you should be a garbage man. (laughs) Garbage man? Why a garbage man? And then he said, because garbage man works only on Wednesdays. (laughs) As a five-year-old boy, as he looked around, he saw that this green truck came to our street only on Wednesdays, and he must have been thinking to himself, wouldn't it be great if my father had that job? Of course, what he saw as a five-year-old was a rather incomplete picture of the reality, isn't it? Because that same truck goes to different streets on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, and so forth. As our faith matures in God, both corporately as a congregation, as individually as a followers of Christ, One of the things that we grow in is our ability to see the broader and larger and fuller picture of that particular ministry to which God calls us to participate. To see a fuller picture of mandate from the Lord that what we are called to do as followers of Jesus and as beloved children of our God. And today we want to look at particularly Isaiah 58 passage to gain a fuller picture of what is it that our God is calling us to engage in. But before we go to Isaiah 58, I want to first locate this particular passage that was read in a broader context of the book of Isaiah. This particular passage in 58 falls in between two great events that prophet Isaiah had prophesied. From chapters 38 to 55, and I know many of you are familiar with this passages of suffering servant. Isaiah had prophesied the coming of the Messiah, his coming, his death, and even the resurrection. That was his first coming. And then at the very end of the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66, Isaiah now prophesies another great event, and that is what he called the final appearance of the servant of the Lord. The glorious reappearance, what we call second coming of our king, 
And this chapter we just read falls right between those two great events. Or to put it differently, the passage we read are for God's people who are located between the first coming and the second coming of our king. That basically is you and I, sisters and brothers. Now, Isaiah 58 passage is a lengthy one, and I know we have a limited time, but if I were to describe very simply the summary of this passage, I would put it this way. Think of it as having two columns, column A and column B. Column A says, if you, my people, that is our God speaking to us, if you, my people, do this or commit to do these things in obedience to me, that's a God's call to us. Column B then goes on to say, then I will provide this for you. If you commit to these things in obedience to me, then I will provide this for you. Now, I want to first briefly look at the second part first. What is it exactly our God is promising to his people? What is that divine promise? And again, I will put them into two broader categories. The first is what I will call God's promise of blessings for the internal community of God's people. For God's people to enjoy. If you go to verse 8, there is explicit promise of God's healing for God's people. God's healing power. And then on verse 9, we see our God saying, and when you call out to me, I will answer you. God's reassuring presence that he would not abandon us in our times of need. The third one, in verse 11, God's gracious provision for his people. Even when they go through times of lean paucity, of challenge, that God would faithfully provide for our needs. And then verse 14, toward the end of the passage, God promises his people this infectious, overflowing joy that we might be able to experience and participate in. A number of the theologians who looked at this passage, and particularly looking at those divine promises, said, you know, these are the descriptions of what Hebrew word calls shalom, peace. What God is indeed promising to God's people is his shalom. And then there is a second type of promise that the God is giving. And if the first set I just described has to do with our internal blessings that we enjoy as a community, the second one is a blessing that God is going to use that particular community to bless others. And particularly in this passage, it is that the Isaiah is using the imagery of being a light. You will be the light to the surrounding nations. You will be the light to those who are struggling in darkness. But look carefully what kind of imagery of light Isaiah chooses here. The light that that is described in this passage is not a flickering candlelight. And in fact, it is not even the lone lamp in a darkened room. Instead, the imagery of light that's repeated twice 
is an is image of a night turning into day. The sun rising, the dawn. The night will become noonday. The day that is, the, the light that is so pervasive and so strong, there is no room for darkness in that picture. And that's what God promises. That will be your blessing. So as God's people, individually, corporately as a church, who wouldn't want to experience that kind of blessing? God's full measure of shalom in our midst and the truth and glory of God just shining forth from this church, from our families, from our individual lives to those who are still captives in darkness. So then we need to go to that first column. Then if this is indeed what our God is promising, what is it that God is calling us to commit to, to be engaged in? And I believe there are three specific mandates and callings that I want us to briefly look at with you, look with you today. Let's start with verse 7. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then verse 10 briefly gets again mentioned, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, the first call from our God to God's people is to serve those who are in need, to exercise mercy toward those around you who have specific needs. Be merciful to those who are in need. In fact, if there were to be one thing that characterized the ministry of our Savior while he was engaged in earthly ministry, I would have to say this was very much central thing that described what kind of ministry he began as he began to proclaim the message of the kingdom and begin to reign in this new movement on this earth. If you go to... Um, Gospel of Matthew, from early on, what you find is this pattern. From Matthew 5 to 7, we read about this amazing sermon that Christ has given. The later we called it the Sermon on the Mount. Late John Stott had called this the Kingdom Manifesto. Remember, when you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on the, on the chapter 7, you see this crowd that was gathered to hear the words of Christ, and they were simply stunned and amazed. Who is this man who speaks with such an authority? The preaching like this we never heard in our synagogues. They were stunned. Jesus becomes an instantaneously a celebrity, if you will. But then what's puzzling are the chapters that come after Matthew 7. When you go to Matthew 8 and 9, now you would think if Christ was here beginning a new ministry, new kingdom movement, having had such a wonderful time of preaching ministry where everybody's now noticing him, that would have been a great time for him to now start connecting with 
who's who in his society, the political leaders, the religious leaders, to earn their endorsements, if you will, their partnership. That would have been incredibly helpful for his young ministry that is just starting off. But if you read Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus almost does exactly opposite of that. In fact, he spends time with lepers, demon-possessed, Roman centurion, and the despised tax collectors. In fact, when you go to Matthew 9, Pharisees begin to criticize, criticize Jesus for spending way too much time with tax collectors and other sinners. And that's when Jesus responds. In verse 12 of Matthew 9, when he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In fact, he's quoting the very verse from the book of Hosea, where God has strongly rebuked the religious people of his time for engaged in a lot of religious rituals and forgetting this truth of mercy. Seeking God's mercy and extending mercy toward those who are in need. That's the message of Hosea. And Jesus is reciting that very verse to remind Pharisees, all these empty religious rituals you engaged in, they're meaningless unless what you turn to is God's mercy and being merciful toward others. I do not worship at this congregation. However, I am greatly encouraged when I hear so many things that this congregation is engaged in that is in the ministry of mercy. Where you participate individually and as a church in a serving of homeless individuals, providing so much hours in caring for young students by doing afternoon, after-school tutoring service. And I know this church has been very generous in supporting many of the international scholars who are studying at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, supporting them financially, spiritually, emotionally. Thank you. Now, we are to be engaged in this kind of ministry of mercy not because we are good people. We're not. Or because we have abundance of resources. Well, that shouldn't be the main reason. But because our God of mercy calls his people to be people of mercy. For Jesus in the Beatitudes, a few chapters before Matthew 9, have exhorted and reminded God's people that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, let's go back to the passage of uh, Isaiah 58, because I want to now move on to the second calling or mandate. And this one starts with a verse 6. Let's go to verse 6 of uh, uh, Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
caring for those who are in need is important, as we've just reflected upon. But this, being concerned about issues of justice and injustice, now gets a little messier, if you will. A well-known Latin American Christian leader once said this, When I feed the poor, they call me a saint. But if I ask why they remain poor, they call me a communist. And yet it seems clear to me in this passage that God calls God's people to engage in the acts of mercy, yes, but go a step further and start wrestling with these issues of injustice and justice in the world. Because throughout the scriptures, God identifies himself as a protector of widows and a father of orphans, naming those individuals who are particularly vulnerable during the times of Old Testament and New Testament. During 19th century there were two wars that were fought between Great Britain and China. And many of you recall this perhaps from your history lessons. It was called the Opium War I and Opium War II. The both wars started when British India Company, East India Company, began to import opium that was cultivated in other parts of Great Britain into China And basically, opium became a great cash crop that brought quite a bit of finance to British Empire's war chest. And as this opium began to grow, the usage of opium began to grow in China, and thousands and millions of people get addicted. Chinese government saw the evil of that and tried to stop it, and that's what precipitated the two wars between Great Britain and China. Now, China was no match for great naval power of Great Britain at the time, and both times they lost the war, and as a condition of surrender, they had to give up Hong Kong for a hundred years, and included in that surrender, conditional surrender, was that they would allow Western missionaries to go wherever they need to go. Now, it was during that time when hundreds of godly missionaries came from Great Britain into China, and one of them was a gentleman that many of us know well, Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor was a trained physician. He came into China, and he began to see immediately the harmful, evil effect of opium trade. And he was greatly distressed. So in 1882 he wrote a public letter to the leaders of Great Britain as well as to the British church. And let me just read you a short excerpt of what he wrote. How then, Hudson Taylor wrote, it will be asked, was opium ever introduced into China and why does it continue to be imported when the eyes of both government and people are open to its evil? The answer is very sad. A foreign nation priding itself on its humanity and Christianity has for the sake of gain forced a poison at the point of bayonet upon the Chinese nation. The Christian country is England. The opium trade 
made England's profession of Christianity hollow and insincere. The opium trade made England's profession of Christianity hollow and insincere. The tragic thing was that this voice, a prophetic voice of protest, was not taken seriously by the government leaders and by the church leaders. And this unrestrained opium trade went on for several more decades, even after 1882. Now, what is most tragic and unfortunate is that these kind of acts have greatly closed the door of the gospel in China. The second half of 19th century and the earlier part of the 20th century, there was this one phrase that was repeated often in China, and it went something like this. One more Christian, one less Chinese. You feel the sentiment behind that phrase? One more Christian, one less Chinese. In fact, anyone who converts to this new faith, you're going over to the dark side. You're abandoning your people, and you're joining that very force that is oppressing our people. Now, compare that story with what was happening around the same time in a neighboring country of Korea. Same Confucius culture. And yet, as you know, when the Western, and particularly uh, American and Canadian missionaries came to Korea in 1880s and 90s, the gospel was received enthusiastically and just church exploded from the beginning. Why the difference? Because when the American missionaries came to Korea in 1880s and 90s, that was when Korea was about to get colonized by Japan. And when the missionaries came, yes, they built churches, but they also built hospitals and schools, from elementary school to universities. And as Japan colonized Korea, and they they began to shut down all the learning institutions, they could not touch American mission schools. So what happened? All the young people who wanted to learn flocked to these mission schools. And in those schools, they learned about the gospel, about Christ. And also they begin to learn about this notion of democracy, freedom and liberty. And in fact, those mission schools produced many young leaders who not only became Christian, knew Christ, but who also fought for the freedom, liberty, and justice. Christianity in Korea from early days was identified as a force that supports the freedom, the justice, and salvation, both for individuals and for society. And that made all the difference. Sisters and brothers, sometimes I hear concerned evangelical Christians and churches saying, You know, mercy and justice, good thing, but we shouldn't be too serious about that because that could distract us from the ministry of the gospel. That it's extracurricular activities that are reserved for a few people who have particular interest in those areas, 
but it's not a concern for the church. It seems to me those historical lessons from China and Korea and the thrust of this teaching from Isaiah 58 argues otherwise. That our commitment to and doing the ministry of mercy and justice does not, do not diminish uh, the work of the gospel, but enhances it. Because that's what our call, God is calling God's people to be engaged in. I know in the recent weeks, Pastor Michael has preached through certain issues that are very critical in our society today. Issues like racism, about abortion, and other issues. And I'm very encouraged to see this congregation wrestling with these issues, biblically and theologically. But I would also hope and pray that as a congregation with God-given wisdom and prophetic courage, that this church would also be able to now go beyond reflections and be engaged in some concrete ministry that addresses so much injustice that are around our community, our city, state, nation, globally. What might it be that God is calling this congregation to be engaged in? Finally, let's move on very quickly to the third part. And that is called to keep the Sabbath holy. It comes at the very end of the passage, verses 13 and 14. And you might be kind of puzzled by this one as I was when I was first going through this. Mercy and justice going together totally makes sense. But keeping Sabbath holy, how does this enter into the picture? Well, pastorally speaking, When we are engaged in ministry of mercy and justice, it can be very tiring work simply because the needs are so great around us. And God calls, particularly, as we engage in these works of God, take seriously the mandate for Sabbath. But I believe there is another reason for that. And that is, as God's people, we are willing to take that one day off and rest simply because we acknowledge that our God is the one who provides. He's the one who is doing the work. He's in control. In fact, I'm very grateful for this third one being in here because it checks us from having Messiah complex. It calls us to be ministers, but not having a delusional thinking that it's all unto us. Our God is already at work in our midst. He merely calls us to now collaborate with what his spirit is already doing and partner with him to engage in this ministry of mercy and justice. It's not our effort. It's not our resources that will accomplish these things. It's our sovereign God who is already at work. He is, in fact, in control. So in the end, Those two mandates I mentioned earlier, mercy and justice, if they were about the horizontal relationship with our other brothers and sisters around us who are in need, this last one is about our vertical relationship with God. And we need to keep both of those together, isn't it? In fact, that vertical and horizontal relationship that is very richly depicted in this passage reminds me of that one verse from Micah 6 
that many of us know well. That Micah 6.8 in some ways summarizes this Isaiah 58 passage, and I would like to end my message by simply reading Micah 6.8. He has shown all you people what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we acknowledge this day that while the needs are great around us and in the midst of us, it is you, O oh God, who is in control and who is busily at work in reconciling, saving this world. And yet you also extend the privilege of collaborating with you in doing your kingdom work. And we count that as privilege, O oh Lord. Now we pray this promises as well as mandates that you have given in this Isaiah 58 will dwell in our heart and express itself in our actions and words during these coming days. That through the lives of the congregation members here, as well as through this church, your light will shine forth like a noonday light in this 10-mile radius of this area, but also beyond. That your name will be glorified and cause of your kingdom might advance further. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.